Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKenty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the Members Forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKenty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on August 12, 2020. My guest on the program today is Dr. Merrill Nass, an internal medicine physician and activist with a long history of advocating for healthcare freedom and a doctor-patient relationship based on informed consent. She has a long history studying anthrax and documented its use as a bioweapon during the Rhodesian Civil War in 1978. Her work with anthrax led her to study Gulf War Syndrome and its connection to the anthrax vaccine, about which she provided expert testimony to congressional committees on multiple occasions. Dr. Nass has spent decades researching the connections between government and pharmaceutical corporations and the resulting corruption that often seeks to skew public perception away from the fundamentals of medical science and towards a profitable outcome for the politically connected. She is currently on the board of directors of the Alliance for Human Research Protection, an organization which seeks to promote healthcare freedom and prevent medical experimentation in the absence of informed consent, and most recently has been showcased alongside Dr. Judy Mikovits in the documentary Plandemic in Doctor Nation, where she helps expose the many issues with the mainstream narrative concerning the current COVID-19 outbreak. Among those issues, of course, is the mainstream narrative concerning the potentially life-saving drug hydroxychloroquine, which has been shown to be effective against COVID-19 when used in the proper dosage and combined with zinc. Her recent blog post, How a False Hydroxychloroquine Narrative Was Created, describes the multiple tactics utilized by corporate and government forces to discredit this generic and inexpensive drug while promoting the use of highly profitable antivirals such as remdesivir, which offer little to no therapeutic benefit in comparison. These tactics include funding studies so unethical as to purposefully overdose patients in order to show a negative outcome when patients succumb to the effects of toxicity. Some studies simply wait until patients are on death's door to apply the treatment, knowing full well it is most effective early on in symptom onset. Still other studies purposely leave out zinc, the active ingredient in the treatment protocol, so as to discredit hydroxychloroquine, knowing it will not show much benefit when used alone. I highly recommend that all listeners check out this article linked in the show notes below where Dr. Nass points out literally dozens of such anomalies perpetuated by the biodefense industrial complex in order to discredit the life-saving treatment protocol, placing corporate profits over the health and well-being of American citizens. Stay tuned as Dr. Merrill Nass gets into the details of the history of the biodefense industry in the United States and just how this industry has steered the public health narrative for the past 20 years. Find out more about her work at anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. I want to thank Dr. Naz for appearing on the program and thank her for helping to make the shift. 
Hello, everybody, and thanks for checking out this episode of The Shift. I'm joined today by Dr. Merrill Nass. Uh, we are going to discuss uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, among lots of other things. I can't wait to pick her brain today. How are you doing today, Dr. Nass? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Doing good. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I was really pleased uh, a few weeks ago when I saw that article that you wrote about the hydroxychloroquine narrative and how it's been driven in the media to uh, turn people off to the potential treatment there. I think the evidence actually, from what I've researched, is so overwhelmingly in support of its use. And to see you come out with that article that just so succinctly put everything in place about how this false narrative has been driven into the public mind, uh, it was great. And I've been sharing that article all over the place to try to wake people up to the fact that uh, this really works, that it seems to uh, help a lot of people, and it's been seriously reducing the mortality rates for COVID in all the countries where it's being used. So it's frustrating to see here in the United States that it's uh, it's been so uh, put down and so ignored in the mainstream press. So thanks for that work. Do you want to just give people a quick history, your background, maybe a little bit of the work that you did uh, in terms of the anthrax vaccine back in the early 2000s, uh, and then we'll we'll go into COVID a little bit. Sure. Uh, I'm an internal medicine doctor. I still see patients. I tend to see them with complex disorders at this point. Um, I wound up for um, for a strange reason. Uh, investigating the first large um, outbreak of anthrax, which occurred in Zimbabwe during the end of its civil war, and was the first person who was able to show that that was due to biological warfare. And after that, I investigated an epidemic in, in Cuba for their Ministry of Health, which was probably due to cyanide and caused a lot of neurological problems and blindness. This is back in 1993. And... Um, as a result of my familiarity with anthrax, I kind of got pulled into uh, look into the anthrax vaccine program when soldiers started reporting they were ill. And I became part of a large coalition of military service members and their families uh, that fought the anthrax vaccine and got the license removed for a couple of years. We had a large number of between, depending on how you count, five and 11 congressional hearings that dealt with the subject of anthrax vaccine. Um, and so I did that from about 1998 to the early 2000s and um, paid attention to the Ebola epidemic and made comments about how that should could have perhaps been managed better in the US. And uh, so when there are epidemics occurring, I tend to look into them and it seems that I I'm able to to see things that not everybody else does. And so I wind up writing and doing interviews like this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know how many of my listeners will know, but there's um, quite the connection actually going back to the AIDS epidemic. And I don't know how much you know about that, but it seems like there's a almost a straight line between the AIDS epidemic and then this anthrax vaccine program that you've been talking about and then straight into what's been going on with this COVID epidemic. It's so fascinating because this is the buildup, it seems like over since the 1980s, um, what's starting to be called, or what I'm calling the biotech industrial complex. And it's this branch of the military industrial complex that deals with biowarfare. We've seen the whole vaccine program become a part of this. 
Um, and, and then, so you've got not only the guys that are making the bioweapons, but then making the vaccines. And then the government has taken over the vaccination program and the bioweapons program all under this, uh, this part of the government and part of the military industrial biodefense. Yep. That's involved in biodefense. And so, uh, maybe just to start, you can connect some of the dots with all of what I just said in terms of, um, you'll have to connect the AIDS dots. Cause I'm unfamiliar with that. If okay. you start. Well, I don't know too much about it, but I think the same thing happened with AIDS. I've, I've heard some the scientists and medical doctors talk about the way that Fauci back in the 80s started using the PCR test for diagnostics with the AIDS virus, which a lot of scientists had concerns with that back then, just as they do now, including uh, Dr. Kerry Mullis, who invented the PCR test, did not like that it was being used to diagnose AIDS. And then they pushed the AZT drug for, for the age HIV problem, uh, just quite similarly to the way they're pushing the remdesivir issue here. So they're pushing these antivirals and these almost chemotherapy drugs. AZT was a chemotherapy drug they pulled off the shelf. These antivirals, I think, are almost kind of similar to those chemotherapy drugs. And then um, there was a, a similar massive media campaign against the AIDS virus, like you're seeing with the coronavirus epidemic, where a lot of doctors... Uh, as they're questioning the severity of, of coronavirus was questioning the severity of the AIDS virus. And so uh, it almost seems like AIDS 2.0 that we're dealing with here in the coronavirus in terms of the way the government is handling the situation. Um, and I think in the interim between AIDS and now, if you include your experience with the anthrax vaccine and the biodefense programs surrounding anthrax, including uh, the anthrax letters that were sent in 2001, that was a big part of it. You start to see all this funding come from Congress, which each, each one of these scares, um, I think one of the things that's been discussed too, we've seen similar scares with H1N1, with Zika virus. Every time the media comes out with these big scares, like they did with the AIDS virus, Congress will pass a multi-billion dollar package that goes to the biodefense industries, some of, of these few uh, various corporations that are involved in all of this, and then they get these billions of dollars worth of funding, just floods of money, yes. uh, just like we've seen with Gilead Sciences and Remdesivir here in the last six months. So yeah, I don't know if you want to touch on some of that and some of your experience with that going back to anthrax. So since the anthrax letters, there's been over $100 billion spent. It's generally about 6 or $7 billion a year on biodefense. And a lot of that money, surprisingly, did go into coronavirus research through the NIAID, Fauci's agency. And up to $51 million a year was spent by NIAID on coronavirus. Um, although you would think to hear him talk that he knows nothing about coronaviruses. Um, he's never that I've seen provided any detail about them or how, ways one might approach um, uh, their treatment. Uh, in any event, this money has in the main gone to beltway bandits. So corporations, small or large, that have lobbied or that have people in place that, you know, these are the corporations that may give jobs to generals once they retire. Mm -hmm. The anthrax vaccine manufacturer uh, started with nothing. They, they didn't have a product. It was just a few uh, sort of 
few business people and a few people from the Michigan State Lab who got together and bought Michigan State's lab, which had been making anthrax vaccine very poorly, by the way, um, for the US government. And that was the only licensed anthrax vaccine in the United States. And for reasons that remain shadowy, they obtained you know, multi-billions in contracts and have, through that, have been able to expand so that they now uh, own the an antidote for opioid overdoses, and they have bought up several other vaccine companies. So they are now selling smallpox vaccine, cholera vaccine, typhoid vaccine as well, all with this incredible, um, through the incredible largesse of the U.S. government, which has been you know, the entity that's purchased over 99% of their product. And they've been exposed. They had more than a 300% profit margin, according to the Center for American Progress, in a report by Scott Lilly, um, didn't stop them. So they have some special way of, of maintaining their grip on government contracts and, um, in fact, have two vaccines that they have um, invested in for coronavirus, that's important because if um, the company is called Emergent Biosolutions, used to be called Bioport, before that it was the Michigan Biologic Products Institute. Um, this company has been perfectly willing to sell substandard vaccine to the US government that's been used in um, millions of soldiers and a smallpox vaccine that also is not that good. And um, if they are the ones that are selling coronavirus vaccines for millions of Americans or millions of people in the world, the quality of those vaccines is not gonna be what this company is most concerned about. Particularly since their anthrax and smallpox vaccines are already, uh, have already been waived. So the company has no liability for either injuries from those vaccines, or even if the vaccines don't work, they have no liability for that either. And because all the coronavirus product, medical products, drugs and vaccines have been given um, a, a waiver under the PREP Act by um, Alex Azar, none of those, none of the companies making drugs or vaccines for coronavirus will have any liability if their products fail or make people sick. So I guess that is a microcosm of this one company. Just imagine there are other companies that are also doing a lot of business. They, they're important because the Washington Post and Whitney Webb have featured this company. So they were, nobody was really thinking about them for the last 10 years and then in May, the Post and Whitney Webb came out with big articles uh, showing and, and talking about actually a congressional hearing too, showing that um, Robert Cadlick, who is the Assistant Secretary of the Health, Health and Human Services for pandemics, for preparedness, um, actually had pre-existing business relations with this company, um, had worked for Fouad El Hibri, the main stockholder and had had done business with him, fairly extensive business. 
and was responsible for giving him uh, over a billion dollars in contracts for smallpox vaccines that, and had greatly incre increased the value of those contracts eight times right after um, El Hibri and uh, Emergent Biosolutions bought the company that was making the smallpox vaccine for the US government. So, so that's a particularly sleazy company to look out for, but there are a number of others that have either come into being to, to take up these government contracts, often um, with you know, former government officials on their board or, or as their officers. Um, and I guess I don't need to discuss more about that, except to say that Cadillac, who is responsible for the $7 billion national strategic stockpile of drugs, vaccines, ventilators, uh, personal protective equipment, including masks, had chosen to spend his money on smallpox and anthrax vaccines, you know, with companies that he had ties to, rather than replenishing the stockpile with masks and PPE. So that even though he has acknowledged and his agency is, and everybody has acknowledged that we needed a certain amount of these, uh, but they're called medical masks or N95 masks that can filter out 95% of quite small particles that you inhale if they're used correctly. And this is what all doctors and nurses use in hospitals throughout the United States and in most of the rest of the world. Um, he only had 1% of the amount that had been deemed necessary at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. And he uh, has not worked that hard at replenishing it subsequently. You remember that um, Trump told the states they're on their own. They had to get their own PPE. So. Yeah, for sure. I, I had heard about Robert Cadillac, and I will point my listeners to the All Roads Lead to Dark Winter uh, series that was written by Whitney Webb, because she goes into this really extensively, so you can learn a lot by checking that out. Um, but just to dive a little deeper, what I didn't know, because I knew about the vaccine stockpile, but I didn't know that he also was stockpiling ventilators and PPE, because one of the questions I had uh, with the current coronavirus situation was about why they were pushing ventilators for so long, even after it seemed like people were dying in droves after they were putting these people on ventilators. And we, and we were already hearing about how coronavirus seems to cause this blood coagulation or this thickening of the blood, which means that the ventilators were not helping. You were putting people well, on ventilators. This is a really complicated thing. And, um, uh, which I've discussed with many people who aren't doctors. And it's, it, you know, if you haven't used ventilators, you don't really um, understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I, and even the, there was a doctor, Kyle um, Seidel, mm -hmm. with an hyphenated last name, who made a video and said, we're killing people with these ventilators. And that was an, even though he didn't really know what he was talking about, and his suppositions happened to be wrong about what was going on. Um, it was very powerful. It was viewed by millions of people. And it, ended pretty much the, the overuse of ventilators. But ventilators themselves, I don't, I personally don't think are the problem. Ventilators are simply there to, to provide oxygen to your body when your lungs are failing for a limited period of time in general, you know, for 99.9% .9 of patients, uh, allowing you to survive a particular insult. Mm -hmm. And there are a huge, I mean, you, you set the ventilator. So you determine the pressures, the volumes, the, the amount of oxygen that's provided, 
whether you're going to try to keep the airways open in between breaths and all these other parameters you can set. The, what was happening with COVID is that COVID was, the second stage of COVID was leading to ARDS and cytokine storm. And doctors were doing what they had always done for other causes of ARDS and, and cytokine storm. And those ventilator settings were not optimized for this. And the amount of time patients needed to be on the ventilator was very long and they weren't recovering necessarily the way they used to, which is you would get your function back. Instead, the lungs were scarring. And so, um, you, know, you know, everything was happening fast. So it's assumed that you're actually helping people to put them on a ventilator temporarily. That if you think, because it was also reported early on, that people would crash suddenly without warning, that they'd be talking to you, they would seem fine, and then all of a sudden they would have a respiratory or cardiac arrest. And if you didn't put them on a ventilator within a minute or so, you know, they'd be gone. So if you, I mean, if you didn't intubate them and get oxygen into them mm -hmm. very quickly, maybe you had a couple of minutes, but not very long. So the idea was if we intubate and ventilate ahead of time, we won't have our patients crashing on us. And, you know, it was a very confusing time. I, I think Dr. Kyle Seidel managed to end it a lot quicker than it would have ended otherwise. But I don't think it was the, you know, I too believed at the beginning of this that we would need more ventilators. I assumed that this disease was going to go the way of almost all the other diseases, and it just turned out it didn't. Sure, sure. You actually bring up a good point, because a lot of times when I'm having these kinds of conversations, you know, people will tell me, uh, like, we're going to talk about the hydroxychloroquine potential treatment protocol here in a couple of minutes. But a lot of people are saying, you know, well, why do you think all the doctors are involved in some big conspiracy? Or do you think that all the doctors are going to, you know, be participating in things that are actually going to kill their patients? I mean, surely doctors do care about their patients. And of course they do. I mean, what you're describing is, is, a, is the treatment protocol everybody started with, and it made sense at the time. But the issue, I think, is why isn't our healthcare system evolving as we learn, right? <laughs> you know, why, do, why doesn't it change when the new data comes in and we can clearly see that other treatment protocols are working? Why did it stick to this, you, you know, wait until the end, put them on these antivirals and then put them on a ventilator as soon as possible, sort of, you know, months after we realized this wasn't working and other options were available? Do you want to comment on that? Yeah. Like, what is okay. it about the system that prevents it from, from evolving? A, so first of all, there isn't a great system for making all doctors change the way they practice medicine quickly. Mm -hmm. And probably there shouldn't be because, as we've seen with hydroxychloroquine, all of the efforts were made to tell doctors that it's a very dangerous drug and um, it was ineffective and therefore they should not be using it. So all, uh, so the levers of government, so, the, so NIH, Tony Fauci was telling doctors this, um, FDA, you know, said, oh, you need an emergency, implied rather, they did not say, because you don't need an emergency use authorization to prescribe it. But they implied that there was something special about this drug and it was just for emergency use. And subsequently, FDA has said after that, that it should only be used in hospitalized patients. And then they said it should only be, it shouldn't even be used in hospitalized patients, only in patients who are enrolled in clinical trials. So that is the FDA guidance to doctors. 
And CDC has really, um, you know, been missing in action. They backed off making, they did this with Ebola too. Um, they did it, uh, I'm trying to remember if they did it with Zika also. They are, they don't like to make mistakes. You know, they're very um, uh, risk averse. Mm -hmm. So uh, unless, you know, they've gotten political permission to, to come out with a statement and it's accurate, you know, and it fits their party line, they're not gonna say anything. So the CDC has deferred to the NIH guidelines. NIH created a, a, um, a, a group, a, uh, an expert, so-called expert group, because nobody was an expert, right? This was a new disease. But they created a group to set guidelines. And of that group, um, it was about 25 people, three co-chairs. Two of the co-chairs had, had financial relationships with Gilead, maker of remdesivir. And they created a, a group of about 25 people, of whom 16 had current or prior financial relationships with Gilead, the remdesivir company. Mm -hmm. And um, so that guideline group came together and said, absolutely don't use hydroxychloroquine, use remdesivir. Remdesivir is the standard of care. And uh, certainly Fauci, they, and they were in total agreement. So doctors who are trying to figure out what they're supposed to do, on the one hand, you know, maybe they see that their colleague has had success with hydroxychloroquine, but the officials are telling them no. And in some states, doctors' licenses have been threatened by their medical board if they do prescribe it. Or so, so doctors have been in a funny place and realize they are as terrified and confused as the rest of the nation. So they're worried they are going to bring this disease home to their families. And they have not had enough PPE, so they've been had to reuse, or maybe sometimes didn't have any, or had you know the wrong kind. And uh, they have been jumping through hoops if they're on the front lines and not knowing who they're exposed to. You know, not everyone has been given them. We, we used to use those masks one off. You know, you'd walk, you'd put one on, you'd walk into a patient room, you'd come out, and immediately there'd be a trash right at the edge of the door right. and you would throw it away. And um, we never use them for multiple patients. We never use them for multiple days. This is completely new. And um, how well they work after they've been, you know, used on, over and over is certainly unclear. And people are trying various things to, to decontaminate them, like putting them in an oven or, or uh, I read today on, on Consumer Lab, you can put it in a cook pot inside a towel and heat it up. So, But you don't know if that will damage the fibers uh, of the uh, polypropylene that it's made out of or affect its electrostatic charge. Although okay. there are papers that say it's, it's okay, but you don't really know. Well, let's uh, let's just take a step back and and solidify this relationship because you brought up Gilead Sciences. So we have companies like Emergent Biosolutions, and then we've got Robert Cadillac, who's been involved for thirty years in all of this. Um, he was involved back with the whole anthrax situation with the anthrax letters uh, and with the anthrax vaccine in the early two thousands, and now he's sitting on top of this stockpile of 
the seven billion dollars worth of vaccines uh of ppe of ventilators of all of these things that he's like in charge of the source that the well, government has because you said it quickly seven yeah. billion dollars right Right. Well, I mean, this is the point, right? Because there's so much money. In fact, the more of this, if he can use two billion of that for coronavirus, then he gets to buy two billion of that from from these companies, from Gilead Sciences. And if you want to talk a little bit more about Gilead Sciences too, I know, like for example, they not only have they created remdesivir, but they also created Tamiflu, which was a windfall for them with the H1N1 uh, pandemic in 2009. And then, of course, Donald Rumsfeld was the CEO in the late 90s. So we're seeing these connections all over the place in terms of this biodefense industry that's developed. Yes. Um, and they're also a company that is known for outrageous prices of some of their antiviral medications. Well, I think what I've heard is, yeah, the remdesivir is going for two to $3,000 a pop as opposed to hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hydroxychloroquine, you could... You could buy in the third world for a dollar for your 16 pills for a full course. Um, But uh, so Gilead Gilead is a company that sort of was a small company and now it's one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world and um, has like Emergent Bio Solutions has been very successful um, with government contracts. So they they had a product, Tamiflu, which everybody's heard about, that was supposed to save you during the swine flu pandemic. It turns out, uh, basically, uh, my friends, Peter Doshi and Tom Jefferson, who looked at the data, got the data, event, it took years, from Gilead and investigated the original data and found that there is no evidence that this drug works. Hmm. On the label, it said that it just reduces influenza by one day. And you have to take it within the first 48 hours. So if it works, it works a little bit according to the label or according to their review, and it's been published in the British Medical Journal. Um, it doesn't, it, it's not been shown to be effective and it has side effects. So there've been suicides and other problems associated with it. But the US government has invested, you know, well over a billion dollars in stockpiling Tamiflu. Now, you don't do that if you're trying to protect the pub- public. You don't stockpile for, you know, billion dollars or more a drug that's only going to reduce influenza by w- one day, you know? Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. you know, nine days instead of 10 days, you're sick. That is meaning that is a meaningless benefit for the population. So clearly, you're right. The, the goal is to spend as much money as possible be able to restock and, and buy new products as much as possible. I'll give you another funny example I, I came up with just last night. I was looking at the uh, 25 or 26 people that the WHO had convened to determine whether to add uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine to their clinical trial, their solidarity trial back in March. One of those people was an independent scientist. His name is Sina Bavari. He was uh, the person in charge at Fort Detrick of testing remdesivir for Gilead. He's not a physician. He's a PhD. Um, So he's never treated anyone with hydroxychloroquine. He's a Gilead guy. He's probably going to make some money out out of remdesivir. 
Um, he, he was written up in the New York Times or Washington Post for, for this. And uh, yet there he is on a small panel of mostly doctors, which he's not, you know, physicians, he's not a physician, talking about whether to add chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine to the WHO clinical trial for coronavirus. So he didn't belong there. He, his only purpose could have been to, to, so let me make clear to your audience, hydroxychloroquine is the challenger to remdesivir, okay? Right. It, remdesivir is really the only drug, and Fauci says it's the standard of care for coronavirus. If in fact hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, perhaps with the zinc and azithromycin or vitamin C, there are many combinations that have been used and the combination is, is um, I'm certain better than just using hydroxychloroquine on its own. Um, but if you give people that drug or the drug in combination with other things, there will be no need for remdesivir. Yeah, pretty amazing. And and what I've seen about the remdesivir trials, just like you're talking about with the Tamiflu, is it doesn't even seem to help mortality that much. It limits, it reduces the time you may be in the hospital by a day or two. <laughs> mortality at all. Right. <laughs> so it's not even that effective. And yet they're pushing this thing. I mean, in my community here, people can't wait to get remdesivir. And they all think that hydroxychloroquine is um, you know, just some kind of quack medicine that Trump mentioned months ago, and it's it's been debunked over and over again. Will you talk just briefly? Because what I don't understand, and I, I mean, other than the money, I mean, you've talked about $100 billion going to this biodefense industry, and all these companies are a part of it. So obviously, they're spending some of that money on uh, advertising. And so the mainstream media is getting is getting money, advertising money from these companies, and then they're going to be pushing, uh, obviously, the the company's bottom line and not uh, alternative treatment protocols. Do you, is that the main reason why so much misinformation is getting out there? Because people really, I, I just feel like they're not getting the proper kind of education, and the corporate media is is spreading a lot of disinformation, so people aren't getting the news that they should hear about these potential treatment protocols that really are working. So somehow in the United States, which you and I discussed before the program, there has been a um, line in the sand between the pro-Trump people and the anti-Trump people. And, and as you know, many Republicans have moved into the anti-Trump camp. And the um, it, it's always seemed a little funny to me because the reason many people don't like Trump is because of what he says and his behavior, which is they feel is unsuitable to a president. But he's actually at some time, at some times in his career, um, has been much more honest than all of his predecessors. Who and Ronald Reagan himself said, "I don't know how anyone could be president if they weren't an actor." <laughs> so. Um, for for reasons, I mean, Trump has not been always the best leader, but for reasons that often have less to do with that and, and more to do with appearances, people have um, decided that he has to be gone and they are willing to put up with almost anything to get rid of him. And um, so now we have, a you know, an impaired Democratic candidate that people are willing to put up with. 
So never Trump somehow with between the media and all these anti, you know, every story almost in the New York Times that can have a Trump angle is given a negative Trump angle. So there's all of this um, subliminal programming and and repetition of anti-Trump, anti-Trump. What I wrote is that never Trump morphed into never hydroxychloroquine. Mm. So if you wanted hydroxychloroquine, you were a cracker, you know, from Texas. And if you're an educated person, you knew that the New England Journal and the Lancet said that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. And that was the end of the story. Um, And then that, however, has morphed into the fact that if there is no use of hydroxychloroquine and effective drugs for this pandemic, the pandemic will never be over. And the never Trump people and the media certainly hasn't helped them put all that together. That the having a, an effective drug for the pandemic means you don't have to lock down. It means you don't have to be afraid of getting it. Mm-hmm. it we can have herd immunity or you can lock down if you want. Maybe we should lock down the elderly, but you can make, you know, 99 point something percent of your hospitalized patients survive if you have, and you won't even need to hospitalize them probably if you give them this drug. So it's very important and people do have not put that together. If you have an effective treatment, we can send children back to school. We can go back to the way our lives were before. We do not need a new normal. You know, we do not need to pretend we're going to be New Zealand and locked down from the rest of the world forever. You know, if we got a safe and effective vaccine and it was proven, I would be fine with using it, taking it myself, giving it to other people. But in lieu of that, and we've never, for 20 years, people have been trying to make coronavirus vaccines and have never succeeded. There are a number of animal pathogens that it would be nice if we had a coronavirus vaccine against, but we haven't been able to. Um, you know, it's it's still very much up in the air whether there will be an effective and safe vaccine. So we have to figure out how, at least I'm trying to figure out, how do we live our lives in until we get one or in the absence of one? And, and you either lock down forever or you let people go about their business and you treat them appropriately as soon as they get sick and pro- and the vast majority will survive. We, you know, we have many thousands of people die every year in the United States. So 2.8 or 2.9 million people die in the United States. And right now about 12% of them are dying from coronavirus. Um, but our, overall mortality numbers right at the moment um, are not much worse. I'm not sure if they're worse at all because people are not always dying of other things. Certainly Mm -hmm. in the UK where um, uh, I've seen more reliable numbers, the total number of deaths is not any higher at the moment. Of course they had their peak. We have had our, we had our big peak. Now we have approximately a thousand people per day in the U.S. being designated as coronavirus-involved deaths, but 
not all of those are because of coronavirus. Some of them are because someone was very fragile in a nursing home, was not expected to survive very long, and that this was the last thing that hit them, just the way the influenza kills a lot of people in nursing homes. That is, uh, that is what happens in, in the world, in the United States, in Europe. A lot of people die in nursing homes from influenza. And this year they're dying from coronavirus. So I don't mean to make light of deaths. I mean, my job is to keep people alive, but I believe we can do this and that the coronavirus can become no worse than influenza, maybe a lot uh, less severe than a normal influenza outbreak if we do the appropriate things. And there has been plenty of literature showing that it works. Yeah, I've got I've got two things I want to bring up about that. And just to add on to what you're saying, they they have changed the the protocols in terms of how they um, they list on the death certificate. So when an elder got influenza, but they had long term heart disease or cancer or these other comorbidities, um, from what I've read, starting in 2003 until just six months ago, the comorbidity, they didn't die of influenza. They would be considered that they died of their heart disease or their cancer or whatever. And they've changed that with coronavirus so that now when these elders pass on because they got, uh, you know, a, an, an influenza-like illness, which is often the trigger that that sets off the cascade that results in death uh, when you get to that that stage in life, uh, they're putting coronavirus down as the cause of death rather than the comorbidity. And that's what's making these numbers look so high. Um, during the H1N1 pandemic, they didn't change. They, you know, they, they continued with the typical protocols that they've always used. And so the numbers appeared low, but they could, if they were, even in 2009, if they were treating H1N1 like they're treating COVID, they could have said 100, 150,000 people died of H1N1. Uh, so part of it is just it's, it's, yeah it's um it's very confusing and there's a lot of different factors that play in so absolutely cdc told doctors to write on death certificates uh you know to fill out the death certificates differently than usual mm-hmm. that's true and that um inflates the numbers of deaths but also a lot of people are frightened to still frightened to go to medical facilities when they have covid or anything else and um, people are dying at home more with this. They've never been tested. Um, so they are not, so that causes some undercounting of mm-hmm. cases. Then, um, as you may have read in, in Mississippi and some other places, the medical examiner or the coroner or somebody else points out that if someone has ever had a test for coronavirus, and, and as you know, we, there have been many millions of tests for coronavirus, positive tests in the United States, if you've ever tested positive and then you die of a, anything else, a shotgun wound or a car accident, you are being listed in um, some states as a coronavirus death. So the statistics in the United States, and every state calculates these things differently. And the CDC is also not reliable. So CDC doesn't actually count the influenza deaths every year. They have an algorithm and they estimate influenza deaths. Mm -hmm. People don't know that. So every year, only about one to 2,000 people are listed on the death certificate as an influenza death because most of the vast majority have all these comorbidities. 
that doctors feel are, you know, contributed more to the death. Um, however, CDC does count children. So you're required to report a child death. And from influenza, you usually have between 100 and 200 child deaths reported to CDC a year. And when CDC applies its algorithm, they'll say that we think maybe up to 500 children per year die of influenza in the United States. We have 76 million children in the United States. So, um, the, so, and we have 186 children so far reported to have died of COVID. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, we are sort of in the, in the ballpark of what, the number of children that would be killed in an average influenza season. And we are higher than by a factor of two, if you believe the numbers you know, of the adults who would die in a normal influenza season. But the numbers are nothing about this epidemic is clear cut. Well, and that's what's so interesting. I mean, you know, you're talking about these flu numbers when when coronavirus first came out. And obviously I was concerned about how uh, um, how virulent the thing was going to be and how dangerous it really was. And so I start comparing it to the flu numbers and they are at the CDC. They're using these disease burden estimates for the flu. But then with COVID, and especially at the time, which was very frustrating for me, they were testing and then giving everybody the case fatality rate based on the number of people. And at the time, they were only testing the sickest people who were in the hospital right. and right. coming up with this 3.5% number and scaring the bejesus out of everyone, saying it was going to kill millions because it had a 3.5% case fatality rate, when it's just a totally different, like, I'm just... I just wish we could go back in time and just do it, you know, do COVID just the same way as, as all of these other ILIs, these influenza-like illnesses, do a disease burden estimate, you know, figure it out using these algorithms and come up with a more reasonable way of, of quantifying how dangerous it is. Instead, it seems they've gone with this mass PCR testing and just scaring everybody half to death. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness, certainly, and a lot of people are dying of this disease, but at the same time, it just seems like they've, they've ditched a lot of the tried and true protocols that have been working for these other, uh, influenza like diseases for the, for past decades. And now they're doing something completely different and it's blowing the thing out of proportion in my mind. Would you agree with that? Um, everything for me is nuanced. So, sure. um, you don't the, the influenza-like illnesses are not being counted. So it's only influenza that, that gets counted. Um, we think that the influenza-like illnesses are probably about 10 times higher. But th those are colds and other things when people say, oh, I, I was sure I had the flu, but I got a test from my doctor and it was negative. We don't know what those are, but some of them are coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, probably mm -hmm. 10 or 20% of them are. Um, uh, what was it? What else was I going to say? So, in terms of their standard protocols, they don't. Um, CDC, you know, creates uh, programs. So they have they've created a, a flu program, and one could argue that they're putting too many resources into influenza to try to get the entire United States of America to get a yearly vaccine that is overall about 37% effective and actually has not been shown to be effective in the over 65 age group, which is when 
you know, 90% of the deaths are. Um, and yet we spend, you know, probably at least a billion dollars each year. Oh, yes, I know we spend more than a billion dollars vaccinating Americans for influenza. And so that's really, that has become, that's more of a political program in my mind than a medical program. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, if you really wanted to make a difference with life expectancy, you might put more money into stopping people from smoking or um, changing the food regulation so our food supply was healthier or um, inspecting the drug manufacturers so we didn't get carcinogens in our medications the way, you know, that has happened with two different widely used medications um, in the last couple of years. So um, for whatever reasons, and I, there are many, um, CDC is organized to have flu campaigns every year. CDC is a, is very much entangled with the vaccine manufacturers, buys about $5 billion worth of vaccines every year and distributes them throughout the United States. Um, so that hasn't had, so, and, um, CDC created this bad test and refused to allow any other tests to be used in January and February in the United States to actually diagnose cases. So um, they own, so in the entire month of January and February in the United States, there were less than a thousand people tested in those entire two months. And basically you had to be, have a classic case and you had to have just come back from China or been in very close contact with someone with a China connection. Otherwise, they refused to test you. And they perhaps knew that their test was no good. And so they could make a diagnosis based on your history rather than based on the test. So their test was no good. They didn't let anyone else do it. And then uh, when they did finally, at the end of February, CDC and FDA start, uh, allowed um, peop uh, companies, labs, universities to start issuing tests and testing people. We got this plethora of tests and we don't know how accurate they are. We still don't know. That is criminal. Maybe we didn't, you know, maybe we didn't know for a month or two, but there are tests being used in the rest of the world. The rest of the world seemed to be happy with them. And instead we got over 100 antibody tests just entering the market with no oversight whatsoever by FDA. And we have these PCR tests, um, which have a high, the PCR tests do have a high false negative rate, but we're using them for diagnosis. And we probably need a clinical diagnosis, which means a symptom-based way of diagnosing people. And it's CDC's job to create those symptom-based case definitions that doctors can use. But to my knowledge, they have not done so. Mm -hmm. um, they could also um, study the available tests more, CDC and FDA, they have that capability. Um, to study the tests and publish how accurate the different companies' tests are, but they haven't done that either. So we are kind of swimming in a in a great deal of um, supposition with very little proof. So, you know, people are arguing about the treatments, people are arguing about the diagnosis, people are arguing about ventilators. Um, the whole thing is completely crazy. And it makes you wonder whether perhaps some entity is, is benefiting from keeping us crazy. People, uh, the media that are blaring out, oh, there's a new mutation. It's going to be worse. You know, this is going to be worse. That, right. And 
they're not blaring out the good news, such as, gee whiz, Africa doesn't have PPE. You know, most of sub-Saharan Africa has very limited medical resources, and yet they're having very few deaths. And in some places, they have high antibody levels. Again, we don't know if the how many people that, that have had this have positive antibody levels. It was claimed that you're not going to be immune. Well, how many diseases are you not immune to after you've had them? Okay. Right. And you think, how many? I mean, I can come up with Lyme disease. Um, there's, there's a few, but 99% of infections leave, if you're a normal person, leave you immune for at least a period of time. And to scare people that you're not going to be immune, you're going to get this over and over again. Or there are people with these terrible chronic cases that never get better. Well, maybe if you treated them with the appropriate antivirals, they, that wouldn't happen. So, um, somehow focused on keeping everybody on edge. And I just, I don't, and the federal agencies who are charged with giving us useful information to manage the pandemic have been missing in action. They have not done so. And so everybody is left feeling like they're on their own and they're terrified. And yeah. they, and we can't even, I can't even make sense of the statistics. They're, they're so poor. So what is everybody else doing? Sure. I mean, it is crazy. I, I definitely want to um, talk in depth while I have you here about the, the whole hydroxychloroquine thing. So I just want to make one more point, and then I'd like to get into some detail about that and, and the article about the hydroxychloroquine narrative that you've published here um, so we can get that information from you. But the one point I want to make before we move to that is we talked a little bit about some of these other things. I mean, we've kind of established that there is this large $100 billion biodefense industry that's involved in the creation of these vaccines um, and also in the creation of the bioweapons that the vaccines often are there to, uh, to protect us from. And, um, and then we've talked about this big stockpile, this $7 billion stockpile. So we're talking about billions of dollars flowing to this industry. And I, and I wanted to bring up this... Um, this notion that in order to fast track both the remdesivir from Gilead Sciences, as well as the coronavirus vaccine during this Operation Warp Speed, it's my understanding that it has to be under, and I'm not sure if it's the PREP Act, but it has to be under an emergency status, which means that if there is another treatment that's working, then suddenly the vaccine can't be fast tracked. It has to go through the, the traditional um, approval process, which then might take a, an extra year or so. Um, so if hydroxychloroquine did happen to come up uh, as a potential treatment protocol, then suddenly these billions of dollars that have already been fronted to these companies for remdesivir and for the vaccine manufacturers, um, that doesn't come to fruition. I think there is a motive here to to at least uh, not allow other treatment protocols to really see the light of day when you've got these billions of dollars on the line that are going through this emergency process, this fast track process that's only allowed under this state of emergency. Is that your understanding? I'm sorry for the nuance. I, I wish I could answer you easily. Well, fair enough. I, I like to think in terms of black and white. So it's a it's nice for you to kind of temper, you know, 
temper my perspective as well. So, so, so let me know uh, what let your me feelings give are. You an example with anthrax, anthrax is a bacterial illness. It responds to many antibiotics. And so those are antibiotics are licensed. They're out there. And so anthrax vaccine, if FDA abided by what you just said, would not have been able to give the vaccine when the group I was involved with managed to get it, the vaccine before a judge and got the license yanked. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the FDA and DOD and um, I think Homeland Security might have been involved too, did give it and he did give the anthrax vaccine an emergency use authorization when it was unlicensed. So I don't think that the federal agencies abide by that necessarily. They do what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, the emergency use authorization is a way to um, use a drug that has not been tested for this particular indication, um, but it or has not never been licensed. So you could you could take a molecule that someone invented, and um, if the federal government said, "Yeah, that's going to work." Um, we think that there's a better than equal chance it's going to work for coronavirus. They could then put it in a vaccine and give it to the whole U.S., you know, without it having gone through significant clinical trials. And um, I thought it was against the regulations to test a vaccine in humans before testing it in animals. That was my, that was my understanding, and I, I looked it up. I thought that's what it said, but Fauci allowed remdesivir to be, not remdesivir, excuse me, the Moderna RNA coronavirus vaccine to be tested in humans allegedly before it had gone through animal testing. So I I think that may have been a crime, but uh, (laughs) that's government can uh, do what it wants in a lot of ways. So sure. the other, but the other thing that can happen with an emergency use authorization is not is it can it al- can al- allow a drug that isn't up to speed that is not on par with what it has to be to be allowed to be sold to be used. So in fact, some of the chlor- hydroxychloroquine in the national strategic stockpile is expired, right? And so that, uh, according to the law, makes it adulterated. And shouldn't be used, but once you give it an emergency use authorization, you can use it. Now, I'll I'll just mention that the FDA has also given a special dispensation to the Department of Defense to use expired drugs in soldiers. Hmm. So um, there has been some testing, but for normal commerce, you know, a manufacturer is not supposed to sell an expired drug. And there was as chloroquine in the national stockpile, not hydroxychloroquine, but chloroquine that was, do- these were all donated by about six different manufacturers that was made in Pakistan that according to Alex Azar was, could never have been get licensed and sold in the United States. It was made under poor conditions. Um, so that's there too. But while it's given under an emergency use authorization, there is no liability for the manufacturer, but this is perhaps even more important. There is, it's specifically written into the, into the law. There is no liability for the government officials who approve its use. And there's no liability for the doctors. There's no liability for the distributors. But in the original law, uh, which was made about 15 years ago, 
they called them government program planners, no liability for government program planners for, for drugs and vaccines under uh, the EUA and, and PrEP Act. And now they've slightly changed the wording. So I think maybe they're government officials or government planners. But I think that's very interesting because they gave themselves this liability waiver, um, which enables them to make decisions that might be very bad for you and me without fear. That's it's, it's a very unusual thing that happened. And nobody knows about that. Yeah, I mean, this liability waiver is happening... <laughs> I, I'm just 100% with you. I mean, it's happened with the vaccines as well. Whenever I see it should be a red flag for everyone. And instead, they just seem to like move along and go ahead and take these drugs when nobody's liable for, for the uh, adverse effects that may or may not happen. Uh, so people aren't protected. Um, and it, it does provide, I think, a really dangerous atmosphere for the kind of treatments uh, that are getting pushed on people especially these new treatments that haven't really been thoroughly vetted or adequately tested. So um, I, it should be a big red flag, and I hope people are listening to this and understand that. Um, again, while I have you, I definitely want to get into the hydroxychloroquine thing. So I'm going to go back in the timeline of COVID. We talked about the ventilators probably around the same time that the doctor was coming out saying the ventilators aren't working. This is crazy. Uh, we also, in New York, during the height of, of the pandemic there, we have this Dr. Zelenko coming out with the Zelenko protocol, and that was hydroxychloroquine and zinc, and using it successfully in this outpatient capacity, I believe. Uh, and he was preventing the patients from getting into the hospital, and certainly, I don't think he had a single death uh, while he was using this protocol. And so, he, this yes, he's had a, a few, like a few, or or under, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I think actually, I, I think he got the idea from this 2005 study that Fauci's organization actually funded that showed that hydroxychloroquine was was useful against the initial SARS virus. So there had so, been that evidence. Go ahead. So that that paper was published in the Journal of Virology, which is an a NIAID journal, mm -hmm. but it was conducted by um, people from CDC. Okay. Uh, some of them were, and um, it was a test tube study. Right. Showed showed that um, yeah the chloroquine drugs were quite effective in the test tube against SARS one, and so it was very important. And Fauci must have known this, you know, ever since because, as I said, he spent uh, hundreds of millions of of NIAID money on coronavirus research. And this was a very important um, piece of it. Because mm -hmm. I mean, right? that's, that's what they're supposed to be doing. We're not giving them money to just play. They're supposed to be developing ways of helping people in the United States. That's right. their job. And so this, you know, if they had a drug for, for you know, a new vi a virus for which no one's ever been able to make a vaccine, that would be very important. And there may well have been additional studies on it because there were certainly plenty of coronavirus studies going that we don't, you know, that we don't know about. Sure. But um, he ignored that and damned the drug. It turned out that back, um, I don't know, about six, seven years ago with MERS, which is a, a cousin, another coronavirus disease that's primarily in Saudi Arabia, 
um, supposedly transmitted from bats to camels to humans. Um, there was there was a a drug two drug combination that had never been tested for MERS, and Fauci had said, "Use it. You know, it's great. If you go into an emergency with, room with MERS, you should, you know, give them something. You don't want to give them nothing." And yet, when this you know, this happened with hydroxychloroquine, which is a much safer drug than the combination he had been talking about. Uh -huh. MERS. You know, he damned it. He said, absolutely not. Turned out that other combination was developed by his agency. And so his agency would have gotten royalties for its use if it worked. And it, and it was a quite dangerous combination known to kill about 1% of the people who take it. So, um, or, or give them a very serious adverse event. Anyway, so that's Fauci. Fauci, you know, I haven't seen the movie of the Dallas Buyers Club, but that talks about how Fauci's Institute prevented the purchase of effective drugs for AIDS. So I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I haven't studied that. I don't know if it's valid, but somebody's written a book about Fauci suppressing drugs for the AIDS epidemic. Anything you want to say just in the last couple of minutes to finish up? Do you want to let people know where they can find your information, more information? Yes. So um, my blog is anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. And unfortunately, to find this list of items, you it, because blogs are chronologic, you have to go back to the June 27th blog, or you can search it with my name. If you type in hydroxychloroquine narrative, it's titled something like how a false hydroxychloroquine narrative was created. And that was something like that with my name will get you there. It's the most popular blog post I have ever written. It's the most important, I think. And um, I, I hope you will take a look at it because it's, um, you know we're talking we're talking a bit theoretically here but you need to look at at what the facts are and i've tried to lay out facts with references for each one so um it's very important for people get the right well get good information i'm not saying mine is necessarily the best information um but check the sources um other people say this too make up your own mind and uh, be aware that powerful forces may be influencing all of us in ways that we can't necessarily even identify. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your work. I'll definitely, um, I'll put a link in the show notes straight to that article so people can find it easily. I can't recommend it enough. And I really appreciate you for putting all that information together. It's, it seems like a lot and to have it right there with all the links to the papers. So, I mean, go ahead and read, you know, read the papers. Um, it, it's not too over your head, even if you're a layman to, to understand how some of these research papers are written out. And um, it's important to, to challenge yourself to understand this information so you can see exactly how some of these studies were put together where they make hydroxychloroquine look bad when they're not actually following the protocol that works. So, uh, it takes a little bit of digging, but I definitely encourage all my listeners to to go for it, do your own research, and come to your own conclusions instead of just listening to what the mainstream media is saying. And and again, thank you so this much, Doctor Matt. Does Matthew. not have to be as scary as you've been told. Mm. It is. It is not. 
Well, thanks. And thanks again for your work. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show. I'll just let my listeners know if you want to find out more about The Shift, you can check out my website at uh, www.theshiftnow.com. And I'm also on YouTube and Facebook uh, at The Shift with Doug McKenty on Twitter at D McKenty. So uh, thanks again to Dr. Nash. Really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, we'll see uh, you all next week. Thanks for checking this out. Take care. Well, all right, all right, everybody. Thanks for listening to that one. What an excellent conversation I just had with Dr. Meryl Nass. What an incredible person, incredible mind. Um, she was just showcased in the new documentary, uh, Plandemic Indoctrination, uh, alongside of uh, Dr. Judy Mikovits. So um, you all should try to go check that one out. Maybe I'll make sure and put that in the show notes as well. So you'll have a link to that, even though it's getting censored, of course, just about as quickly as we can get it out there. But um, I've checked it out and it is excellent. I thought I'd give it a, a big thumbs up in terms of uh, really getting the information out there about what's going on with COVID-19 uh, in terms of the, of the bigger picture. So uh, a lot of great information there. And I was really happy to see that Dr. Ness was uh, able to uh, get um, a, a good word in there because her work um, has been so important, especially on this hydroxychloroquine thing. I've just been so upset and I was so happy that she was willing to come on because when I read her article uh, about uh, how to falsify this hydroxychloroquine narrative, how to create this um, fake hydroxychloroquine narrative, that um, it, it was so well written and all the information was so well sourced that it's really worth checking this out as well. Uh, if you're still on the fence about hydroxychloroquine and its potential uses in terms of fighting uh, this COVID virus, um, you should really give it a read because it's got all the information that's been coming down the pike just in all the different ways. It really reminded me a lot of when I do started doing a lot of this research on the vaccination situation where you start looking at the science of it and you find all these uh, scientific papers and they're peer-reviewed and they look like good papers, but when you look at them, they don't really address the central problem. This happened uh, in a vaccine trial. It was all over the news. Said, hey, look, you know, we've proven that the MMR vaccine is not connected to autism. All over the news just a few years ago. Well, you look at the study. Uh, it was done in a country where there are only 20 vaccines on the schedule, not 80 shots like there are in the United States. And the study compared people that had 19 shots on the schedule and not the MMR vaccine versus people that had gotten all 20 shots, including the MMR vaccine. Lo and behold, they have similar autism rates, and they say, see, the MMR vaccine doesn't cause autism. Well, you know, knowing full well that the vaccine skeptical community are looking for safety studies on the entire vaccine schedule. It's not just the MMR vaccine. It's all the vaccines combined that people are concerned about. So the study gets published, and of course the corporate media pushes it as unequivocal proof that uh, the MMR vaccine is safe, um, but it doesn't really address the actual issue. Um, this is such a common tactic that pharmaceutical companies use, uh, in, using the, the quote-unquote tobacco science to prove that that their methodologies are harmless, uh, when in fact, I, I think it's quite clear that they're not. And they've done the same thing with hydroxychloroquine here. They've, um, they've just come out with a series of 
papers and a series of research studies that are showing that hydroxychloroquine is dangerous, but they're overdosing patients, or they're not following the Zelenko protocol and other protocols that doctors have used successfully. They're twisting it, skewing it, getting bad results on purpose, and then saying, see, now we've got to use our expensive drugs. We can't use this inexpensive treatment protocol. And also really important to note, and we brought this up in the, uh, in the interview, that if there is a, a, an alternative treatment that is working against against COVID, then all of these rushed, rushed um, vaccines and remdesivir that are all being rushed and not properly safety tested under the emergency use lines in uh, the PrEP Act, so they don't have liability and they get to rush through these things, there can't be another alternative treatment that's actually working. There has to be a situation where nothing else is working and this all can be used under emergency use so we can rush them through, we don't have to safety test them, and the producers don't have liability when they are harmful. Um, and this is exactly why the corporate media has to come out against hydroxychloroquine and the big pharmaceutical companies that are paying for that corporate media. Uh, want to come out against it. They have to discredit it as much as possible so they can rush through these other more expensive drugs liability-free, and that's key. So the other interesting thing that I found about this particular conversation was I was really trying to be black and white about this. I personally uh, have been following this closely for the net last four or five months, and um, you know, I'd say about June, by the time that Dr. Nass wrote this article, I was convinced myself that there was something to hydroxychloroquine and I was really upset because people are dying as a result of our government here in the United States not allowing this protocol to be utilized. And so, you know, I'm frustrated about it and I wanted to nail him to the wall and to her credit, uh, Dr. Nass was more nuanced. She didn't want to just go and say, no, all these doctors are horrible people, they're murdering people. <laughs> you know, she wanted to to take a more realistic view, and I appreciate that because I tend to tend to, do tend to look at things more black and white, um, and her nuanced perspective, you know, just just shed a, a, well a lot of that gray area that is there in all these conversations that we have to talk about, which is just another reason why uh, healthcare freedom is so important. We need to be able to choose. We can't necessarily prove one way or the other which path is the healthiest for us, uh, for our communities for our, our nation. Uh, we just need to be free to be able to make choices for ourselves based on our own uh, experience and the doctors that we trust and the science that we're following personally. Um, because there are gray areas and it is difficult to discern. And we ended up having a really interesting conversation. Uh, she just wanted to, to remind all of us that it's not some grand conspiracy all of the doctors aren't pushing expensive drugs because they're all out to make money that actually the vast, vast majority of doctors are trying to help patients, trying to do the right thing. It's just a few bad actors and a corrupt system that we're dealing with. So um, that was a really interesting part of the conversation, and I thought that uh, it was great that she kind of tampered me down a few notches just to say, hey, you know, don't get too conspiratorial here. We're living in the real world. Um, but then at the end, the conclusion certainly was that the treatment uh, of certainly some of these hydroxychloroquine trials were highly unethical, uh, just as a result of the fact that they could have been helping these patients out and instead really overdosing patients, causing harm 
just to prove that hydroxychloroquine quote-unquote doesn't work, well, it's not going to work if you overdose them. We knew what a safe dose was, so why are you overdosing these people? She certainly came out against that, and uh, we are seeing a lot of really sketchy quote-unquote science going on when it comes to this hydroxychloroquine talk. So anyway, uh, really fun conversation with her, um, and I'm glad that she's getting the... Uh, the um, notoriety that she deserves in terms of this pandemic documentary because she's been in the forefront of this fight for a long time fighting for uh, healthcare freedom especially with the people that suffered from Gulf War syndrome uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s fighting against the anthrax vaccine and the biodefense industry way back when so uh, kudos for her for getting the recognition that she deserves um, all right and before i go i just want to let everybody know that i have been working a lot on the website, I'm changing my RSS feed. Um, I guess the good news is that the podcast is growing, uh, but the bad news is that I have all of this housework, cleanup work to do, uh, and so the website's been down, or it's been up and down, or it's been changing and not working super well. Uh, the RSS feed is not working super well, so hopefully all of this stuff will be oh, certainly cleaned up by the end of August. So give me another week or two. <laughs> And uh, I'm migrating my, my website to a new host, um, and that's taking a little bit of time. It'll probably be down for a couple of days. Um, and hopefully, we'll keep the subscription thing up and running, and that'll actually should start working more smoothly for those of you who've subscribed on the website to get the second hour. Um, and if you haven't done that, please think about doing that. Uh, I really could use the help, and I actually want to get more and more people to hear the, these um, these interviews in their entirety because they're so good. I wish I could afford to give them away for free. Uh, I am going to start offering a lot more free content because I do think the information is so important, but for this one uh, last hour or last half hour or so of each of these interviews, I am going to keep putting them behind a paywall because i got to get a little something for the effort. Um, so please think about hitting the website www.theshiftnow.com and clicking on the subscribe button for six bucks a month you get uh, all the past episodes of the shift and all the full-length episodes right there at your fingertips and access to the to the forum which i'm hoping will as i get more and more subscribers will become a really interesting place for all of us to have some good conversation about this stuff so uh, thanks again for your patience having a little bit of growing pains here but uh, it'll all be cleared up in a couple of weeks and um, i've got an interview coming up for you guys next week with uh, journalist eric bros um, so stay tuned for that and we'll see you next time everybody take care <laughs>